We have been very, very good as an industry at selling subscriptions. And yet when suddenly it becomes a membership and a digital subscription, we suddenly think it's difficult. Mm. So I think that's something that, that companies have to get over because it is an absolutely crucial revenue stream. I think it is the crucial revenue stream for the next 10 years. You're listening to FIP Insider, the podcast that gives you the inside on current trends and future tech in media. Hello and welcome to the inaugural episode of FIP Insider Podcast. I'm Charlotte Ricker, journalist and podcaster. And I'm Ashley Norris, journalist, podcaster and someone who's written about the media for longer than they care to remember. So, what exactly is FIP Insider? Well, it's an inside look at the publishing industry, looking at trends, key issues, and where we think magazine publishing is heading. It's all about disruption, whether that's from emerging companies, technology, or cultural shifts, such as how the consumption habits of millennials and Gen Z are changing media. Don't worry though, guys, it's not just gonna be us rambling on, even though I know Ashley would actually quite like that very much. Cheeky. In each episode, we are going to be talking to industry experts, thought leaders and influencers, some of which, incidentally, are going to be speaking at FIP World Media Congress this year, which takes place in Estoril, Portugal from the 15th to the 16th of September. In the meantime, you can hear their opinions, experiences, predictions right here on FIP Insider. Now, Ashley, speaking of predictions, <laughs> I found something that you wrote on your blog way back in 2010 Uh-oh. and what you thought was going to happen in publishing oh, okay. over the next 10 years. Do you remember writing that, Ashley? Yeah, I do, actually. And I would imagine I would have basically talked quite a lot about video. I think at the time I was obsessed with with uh, you know American video networks and the way they were growing and the way all the money was coming in from the kind of big American broadcasters into video and also just the way that people were doing interesting things on YouTube. So I would have said something on the lines of video is going to become the most important thing for publishers from a, a, a revenue perspective and mm-hmm. probably growth mm-hmm. of, of, of traffic and circulation mm-hmm. as well. Was that right? Oh, uh, it's not. Is it the most important revenue? No, but it is a very important form of revenue. I'll give you that. Yeah, I think what I bear in mind as well. I think the other thing I would have said that I know you're going to pick me up on now was I was probably very rude about print media. Yes, I think at the time I was very rude about talking print about print um, as if it was definitely going to die. I mean, I think I was probably drinking the the digital Kool Aid at that point. Um, and would have suggested that you know, I can't imagine like for example I would have said something like Radio Times won't be here in 10 years time and still going strong it certainly is so I got that one wrong I guess you did actually get that wrong um, we agree that print is uh, not, is definitely suffering but it's definitely not dead yet blogging is going to take over the world is like did I really say said. that? you did you said the Mashable is going to be bigger than the New York Times oh, yeah. and Gorka will be bigger than National Enquirer. Okay. Bold claims. I think I wasn't entirely serious about that. But I think the point was, was at that time, you had a lot of um, blogging companies that kind of grew up in the kind of mid of the decade before that were maturing at that point. Mm -hmm. And if you think you bolt onto this as well, Vice Media and Gorka, and at that time they were starting to get, you know, really big valuations and getting a lot of um, venture capitalist money. And it looked like they could go on and do, you know, incredible things and become as big as the kind of biggest established media companies. And again, that's not really happened, is it? It's not, actually. I think you're also possibly hoping your blog was going to take over the world. Possibly, That didn't happen yes. either, did it? No. No. <laughs> no. And also, 
Talking right. of, uh, of Twittering on, um, Twitter, you said, was going to be the number one social media platform. Really? It's going to take over Facebook. No. Yeah, that's what you said, Ash. Well, okay, just to give some context to the time. So uh, 2010, yes. I think Twitter was at that point where it just really began to hit the mainstream. So, for example, all of a sudden you had BBC programmes like Question Time and Match of the Day with sites saying, oh, you know, contact us on Twitter. Yes. It was all over the radio. Um, a lot of celebs on Twitter, you know, start to notch up a million followers here you know oh, we've all got a million followers now haven't we but um you know that was happening at that time yes whereas facebook yes you know it seemed to be slowing down a little bit but i you know i guess i underestimated you know the genius of mark zuckerberg and yeah the way he's managed to hook us all the in the evil there. genius and, and of zuckerberg was keep, keep us basically clicking mm. so yeah who could have predicted just how quite an evil genius he's going to be which actually we will discuss later on speaking of which What's going on in this podcast? Well, rather than just us talking about fail predictions, we're going to have a look at what really did happen in publishing. We've got a great interview with FIP CEO James Hughes, who's going to talk us through the key moments in publishing over the last decade. So, James, over to you. James, welcome. Thank you. To the inaugural FIP Insider podcast. Thank you for joining us. We're obviously at the beginning of a new decade, very exciting. At this time, 10 years ago, Ashley here made some predictions. Oh, do we have to bring that up? About the world of publishing, <laughs> which I have to say were spectacularly wrong. Um, print dying out, uh, Twitter eating Facebook. Ashley's cringing here next to me. Uh, <laughs> hindsight is a wonderful thing. So we thought we'd take a look back at the things that actually did happen in the last decade. Yeah. And we thought, who better to guide us through the key moments in publishing than the CEO of FIP? So Ashley, what are we going to talk about? So we we've just to you know give you a bit of background. James and I have already had a bit of a chat about what yep. we're going to talk about. Absolutely. So it's not me making this up. Uh, we both I think we both we, we both agree with these things. So I think one of the first things is I've called it the Facebook wobble, but yeah. generally it's the decline of social media in importance for publishers. So 2010, I remember publishers were really excited about social channels. Definitely. You had all these you know, venture-backed companies like BuzzField building a business around them, and, and Facebook and Twitter seemed like uh, a direct route to a young, influential, sometimes affluent audience. Everyone's excited about it, it was the future. What went wrong? Well, I mean, you know, of course, we don't like to see anything going wrong, but I think in that, it, it, both in your predictions and in the things that we're talking about, I mean, your predictions were spectacularly wrong. So I'm going to, I'm going to take great delight in picking cheers, those to cheers, pieces. James. <laughs> but uh, that's uh, that's the danger of making them, I suppose. Um, I think in specifically around that model, what what really happened there was that um, the narrative of the last ten or twenty years in the industry has been about the decline of the two traditional revenue streams of print um, advertising and print circulation, and that leading publishers to look for alternative ways to make money. Uh, and the first one that they alighted on was digital advertising. And digital advertising made a lot of sense because you've suddenly got this very large platform that's free to access, free to distribute on, uh, and when you put your content on it, people want to look at it in much larger volumes than they did in print. Um, the problem, I think, is that these very large gatekeepers to content emerged in the form of Facebook primarily and also Google and uh, Google's various businesses, um, YouTube and so on. And they, over the course of the last 10 years, started to sell their own advertising. 
And it's easy to forget that, you know, this is a relatively recent phenomenon, particularly mm-hmm. on yeah, Facebook. Yeah. Uh, I still remember all the kind of um, uh, speculation about when Facebook would start selling ads. Yeah. Uh, and they've gone from, and I forget when it was, I mean, probably six or seven years ago, but whenever it was, they've gone from zero to being basically the second biggest player in the digital advertising market in the world in less than a decade. So in the time that you've, you know, we're talking about here. Mm. The problem with that is that they keep all of that ad revenue for themselves. So that is not an equitable relationship with the people who are providing content to those platforms. Um, what does that mean in turn? It's meant that a publisher who's putting their content out has two choices. They can put their content on a social platform and get very, very minimal reward for it or they can put it out on a social platform or, or do very good SEO and, and search capability through Google and push people to their own platform, their own website, where the numbers will be lower and the advertising revenue is basically very small. Um, if you look at the, the, the data there, I saw a thing uh, recently that suggested that for all of the companies other than Microsoft, Amazon, uh, Amazon now being a very big, big digital ad player as well, mm-hmm. Google and Facebook, if you take the aggregate uh, performance of digital advertising in everybody else's uh, world in the last, I forget what period it was, six or seven years, it's actually gone down. It's actually declined. We're making less money from digital advertising than we were six or seven years ago. And that's because those companies have a monopoly on digital advertising. Yeah. Uh, they control collectively anything up to 80 or 85% of the market. And almost 90% of all the growth in the digital ad market is going to Facebook and Google. So what does that mean, going back to the original question? It means that the economics and the logic of building a business based around distributing your content through a social channel and then selling ads around it just doesn't make sense mm. because the only people who win from that are Facebook and Google. Now, the flip side of that is, of course, the one thing we forgot, and this is our fault, we forgot that Facebook, Google, and these other companies are not public utilities. They don't exist to benefit society, and we're going to come on to this later when we talk about fake news. They don't exist to benefit society, they exist to benefit their shareholders. That means that they have no obligation to treat us fairly, unless the government legislates uh, to tell them to do so. And I think we forgot that. I think we thought that Facebook, it would always be in Facebook's interest to keep us happy, whereas of course Facebook doesn't really care about us. Do you think as well, that scandal around Cambridge Analytica, you know, even that has put a bit of a stranglehold on the you know the the kind of pipeline of of traffic that that some publishers were getting from facebook yes and no i think it's tied into the bigger question of privacy i I do think that privacy is the next big battleground in digital media and it's one that we haven't really got very far down the track with so far i maintain i don't have any evidence to back this up but my contention would be that the average person on the street has no idea how much data is being collected from them on a daily basis. Yeah, I can I imagine. Think the thing is, though, I think even if they even if they know it, I think people don't care. I think I know people. They say they don't care. I've got nothing to hide. I don't care. Yeah, I think that's also true. They don't. They don't care. But I think they would care if it suddenly started to get used for things that they're not comfortable with. And that's yes. where that's the territory that Facebook drifted into with Cambridge Analytica. Yes. Do they really want? Do you as an individual really want your data to be aggregated up in such a way that you can then be targeted with false and offensive advertising promoting political causes that you know are not, yes. are not of benefit to society? And, and I think um, you know, FIP is not a political organisation, so we don't get really get involved in, the, in, in, in this side of the, side of the business. But you know, as, a, as, a, as a citizen, 
you have to take a view on these things and say that he's not to society's benefit. Mm. So I do think there's an emerging uh, uh, consciousness of the public at large of uh, the privacy implications of what they're doing in, in, in the digital world every day. And I do think there's starting to become an emerging consensus about just how powerful these platforms are. Mm. I mean, Facebook, as somebody described it an event, as an event I was at last week, is the biggest telecoms company in the world mm. with WhatsApp. You know, they've got a sure. bigger telecoms capability than any individual other company, and they control that and Instagram and Facebook. You know, they have this utter stranglehold on the social channels that most of the people in the Western world use in, the, in their lives, and that's just not healthy. Mm. The government are are making promises, or sort of making sounds that are going to be promising to be monitoring, aren't they, and putting in yeah, I mean, I, I regulations. Think, do you think that's going to happen? Yes, I do. I think the direction of travel is very much towards regulation. And I, again, this, the, this, this uh, was at an event in, in the US a couple of weeks ago where somebody made a very compelling case to say that Facebook will get broken up either through legislation or just through market pressure because actually the bits of Facebook are worth more than the thing joined together. Uh, and the same might be true of Amazon and the same might be true of Apple and a couple of other companies. And that, that felt quite credible to me in that you, mm. can, you can rely on good old-fashioned finance and profit to dictate these things more than legislators. So I can see a, a kind of pincer attack happening towards some of these tech players. And the, the, the golden rule of these things is don't draw attention to yourself. Yeah. And Facebook has drawn massive attention to mm. itself. I think actually when we're back here in 2030, I'm going to remember that as a prediction. So, mm. Uh, mm. F- Facebook to split up. Okay, we should <laughs> move on to number two, yeah. which is about the resilience of print. And uh, so, I, again, casting my mind back to 2010, you know, it felt like publishers sticking with print. You know, yeah. they were the dinosaurs, they were going to be buried alive by the digital meteorite storm. But, yeah. you know, a decade on, we've still got a lot of printed publishing. People are even starting to build businesses around print again. How has it proved so resilient? Well, I think, I think this probably is the prediction where you were closest to the truth. And, and we shouldn't delude ourselves. Um, the print industry and the print medium has suffered enormous decline in the last 10 years. I don't have the figures to hand. I actually do have some figures here. Do you? Like Go on, tell me figures. what the figures are. Well, according to research, in 2018, there was 373.8 million magazine titles sold. And back in 2011, uh, there was 820 million. Yeah, I say so I would have said about half, and that's more or less more, about half. I mean, yeah. so more you know, slightly more, more than half. Yeah, more that than feels half. like the that feels right to me based on what I can see in the market. So um, there are not uh, you can't say in aggregate that that's a that's anything other than the decline of the market. No, it totally. is the decline yeah. of the market, absolutely. And I think we have to be clear about what's driving that. We have to remember that for many many years, this industry, the print industry, has been has been enormously profitable, particularly in the area of. Uh, weekly magazines aimed at women. Uh, women's lifestyle magazines and celebrity magazines and to a lesser extent television magazines that have a broader audience than just women. Enormously profitable, very, very high volumes of revenue um, and they have sustained the industry. That, unfortunately, mm. that business is the business most affected by the internet. Um, all of that content is get largely going to go to digital platforms. Mm-hmm. Uh, if not directly by the publishers themselves, then being substituted by somebody else who sees an opportunity. So that market is just eventually going to disappear. I think that's, you know, I'd be quite unashamedly make that would prediction. You, would you be brave enough to put a I wouldn't say 10 years because I that? think it's a demographic thing rather than a market mm. thing. Uh, there is definitely the sense that older people still prefer to read in print. 
but eventually they're all going to die. And when they do, brutally, and when they do, the market will probably die with them. Not, what about, you know, there are niche titles? So, yeah. so let's, I'm so thinking of strong words here, you correct. know, things like so, that. You know, so let's, emerged, let's but... say three, let's, let's, there are three green shoots that you can identify. Yeah. The first one, you're absolutely right, is niche titles. Niche titles have actually been pretty resilient in they, some cases. Yeah, and they've, they've been, there's been a growth of that. Yeah, and in some cases, they've increased their circulations in print and, yeah. and, have, and have used that as a basis for building a bigger brand. I'm thinking about a brand like BBC History magazine, which is mm. very successful in print and is growing in print and, and does very well out of it. And, and there is definitely a sense that if the industry now is about creating content for communities of interest, which is basically what the business we're in now, we're all in, then the tighter and more closely defined uh, the community of interest is, the better it is to have a direct connection with them in the form of a printed magazine. They seem to yeah. prefer that. Um, the second green shoot is that print is starting to successfully reinvent itself as a luxury medium. So we're starting to see quite a large number of magazines, Forbes magazine being the most recent one announced this week, but we've also had um, uh, Rolling Stone magazine and a couple of other US titles do this, relaunching themselves as... Uh, lower frequency but higher cover price and much higher production mm. values so moving away from the idea that you have to drive the production quality down in order to sustain the profit in favour of saying no 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 this is a luxury medium we will charge a luxury price for it yeah. so a lot of magazines in America are 10 bucks now yeah. a lot of money um, uh, and, but we will give you really nice paper it's and like vinyl isn't it it's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a beautiful agreement. artwork and yeah. people will pay money for it because it's yeah. a collectible item mm. well I've still got you know my issues is the you know, obviously, faces had a revival. Yeah. The first, the first year, I got them all. They yeah. felt like collector items, and I think yeah. that's what—that's the way print could go. It, but as right. you say, it's so niche, therefore, it's not really a sustainable market for these massive publishing houses. No, it's not. It's not sustainable. It is a sustainable market for some of the mass publishing houses because they can use the printed product as the luxury outlet for the brand in right. some cases, and mm. then they're making money in the long term off events and uh, things that we're going to talk about later on, e-commerce and stuff like that. Well, that brings me on a little bit to the third. I was going to guess the third. Are you going to talk about branded content? No, I was. I know. I was. Okay. That is an area of interesting. Maybe there's four then. Maybe there's four. You're right. Uh, the third one was independently published magazines, where uh, we've just started doing some work to understand this space in more detail. But anecdotally, from the travels that we do around the world, the markets we look at, the one area of print that is booming is small, uh, independently published titles. Again, very niche focused. Uh, passion projects for their for yeah. their founders usually mm. very low resources but very very high levels of creativity and very very high levels of production so very high production values um, that, are they making money some of them are yeah I think and there's a few of them that are starting to break through and become not independent anymore they're becoming mainstream uh, magazines we were just talking uh, today about um, delayed gratification which is a you know news and current affairs yes. magazine that many many of the listeners will know which is which is you know starting to get pretty big mm. uh, and that started as an independent magazine so that's that's an area of real interest it's an area we're looking at uh, in more detail over the coming months to just understand the scale of the market because I use when we present this on stage I use the analogy of a forest fire you know when a forest burns down and all the trees burn what's the first thing that happens? New things start to grow mm. in the shoots. And they're very small green shoots of this, that, and the other, and eventually one or two of them will become big trees. That's kind of what's happening in magazines. Uh, it's fascinating that I do a lot of work with universities, get a lot of time um, with, with students, and it's amazing 
almost all of them, and this may be a product of the courses I'm on, but almost all of them want to launch a magazine. They don't care about launching a website or a blog or anything. <laughs> How else. ironic. They want yeah. to launch a magazine because there's something about the physicality Actually. of that yeah. product that is the right expression for their passion. Now, the good thing about those guys is they come to the market with no preconceived idea. They don't really care whether they sell an ad or not. And they assume they're never going to sell an ad. And they assume they're only going to sell 5,000 copies. So when they sell 6,000, they're amazed. So they're coming at it with it. And then, you know, for them, the the, the leap to then launch an event or sell a branded product is not a leap because it's easy to do that these days. A lot of legacy companies make it hard for themselves. It's not hard. Just do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And those and those people, young people coming into the business, don't have any of that fear or that preconceived yeah. idea. And that's that's very refreshing. So mm-hmm. yeah. so just how do I sum that up? I sum up and say that print is definitely not going to die in our lifetimes and probably not in our children's lifetimes, but it will be a very different beast from what it is now, what it has been. The days of, you know, uh, large multi million circulation magazines. Uh, with high frequency and, and, and low cover price are probably coming to an end. Mm. Mm. Okay, so we should move on to the third one. Again, something else we didn't see coming in 2010 was the growth of membership and such. So yeah. back in 2010, publishers were getting all those amazing CPMs for their ads and yeah. you know, a lot of buzz around programmatic advertising. But, you know, decade on, everyone seems to be focusing on paid-for content. So yeah. again, why has this happened and where's this going to go? Well, it's related to the things that we've spoken about so far. Um, when you to go back to the right to the very beginning, we talked about the narrative of how companies ended up in the situation they're in now. When you're, you don't want to end up. You don't want to. How can I express this best? Smart management will look at the situation they're in and say, "How do we avoid repeating that?" And what was the mistake the industry made? The mistake the industry made was to assume that two revenue streams was enough and that two revenue streams would last forever. Hmm. And I think most smart management teams now go, hmm, we need four or five revenue streams because the pace of change in the market is such that we cannot tell which one of our revenue streams is going to get disrupted. We know that one of them will, and when it does, it will get disrupted very, very quickly. Uh, we do this thing on, on, uh, on stage where we look at the speed of adoption of new technologies. So from the, uh, the first person to take a commercial uh, flight to the whatever it was one millionth passenger took 60 something years for the same take up rate for Pokemon Go it was 19 days so mm-hmm. the, the adoption rate for, for things that become mass can be very very rapid yeah. so to put that into context publishers are then going right I need four or five ways that I can make money from my audience and the membership and subscriptions model is one that they've been very familiar and comfortable with with their print products for, for a number of years. So it's a, a very logical place to go. It ticks a lot of boxes. It cuts out those troublesome platforms that we talked about earlier, gives you a direct-to-consumer relationship. That, in turn, gives you a load of data. And the happy convergence at the moment is that the consumers are becoming used to paying for stuff in that way, thanks to Netflix and Spotify mm. and Microsoft mm. now as well, who if you have an office... Microsoft Office product, you pay for it on a monthly subscription, etc., etc., etc. So that's becoming, the consumer's becoming habituated to paying yeah. in that monthly yeah. fashion. That plays into our strengths. What I get frustrated about, both in my professional capacity as the head of the organization and personally uh, coming out of the industry, is that a lot of our media brands, particularly magazine media brands, still seem to have some kind of insecurity about this. We are very, very good. We have been very, very good as an industry at selling subscriptions. And yet when suddenly it becomes a membership and a digital subscription, 
we suddenly think it's difficult. Mm. So I think that's something that, that companies have to get over because it is an absolutely crucial revenue stream. I think it is the crucial revenue stream for the next 10 years. There's mm. another prediction. You can you can haul me over the coal for <laughs> it. Well, no, I mean, yeah, so business model is, is, is huge, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the growth it, has been incredible. It, it is. And I've heard people say that if you don't have a digital subscription either now or plan for your business, then you won't have a business. It's going to be that important. Mm. Um, that wouldn't quite go that far, but it's but it is certainly critical. Mm. This kind of leads actually into you know another uh, fourth thing, which is the growth of alternative revenue sources. Mm. So I mean, again, there's a lot of things that have come back in fashion. So yeah. back in 2010, things like events, affiliate deals, e-commerce just felt really unsexy. You know, yeah. they weren't things that publishers were rushing to pursue. But we're back again in that situation. Is it driven completely by the fact that you know they've got advertising? money that's not there anymore that they need to recoup some of the back or are there other reasons that kind of pushing people in that direction? I think it's two reasons. It's a two-way a two-way thing really. The first direction is the consumer. The, this is what the consumer wants. The consumer wants to interact with brands in all of those ways. They want to be able to buy stuff from their favourite brands. They want to be able to go to an event and experience the brand live. They want to be able to, I don't know, ask uh, Alexa to give them a, a, an audio product, a podcast or whatever mm. from their favourite brand. And that's increasingly what we have to do. I mean, not increasingly, that is what we have to do as media businesses. We have to serve the, co- the consumer's needs. Um, so that's the kind of positive slant on it, is to say that this is us being really good at listening to the audience and giving them what they want. The more pragmatic, um, business-driven approach is to say that at the same time, that's also not a bad thing, because to go back to what we were saying earlier, that then is developing four or five revenue streams for you that are de-risking your business. And yeah. de-risking the business is something that everybody has to be doing. And, and, and the consumer is much more demanding now, aren't they? Yeah. That's, that's, I think that's been a huge change in the last 10 years. There are much higher expectations, and in terms of, sort of custom service, they expect more, which I think is a benefit to publishers. Definitely. As you say, that offers extra... Definitely, and, that, and, and you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't harp on exclusively about the negativity of, of these big platforms. One of the things that they have done is to... Is to is to respond to consumers' needs to the point that consumers now expect that, as yeah. you rightly say. Yeah. That's something that where we need to raise our game. The people at Amazon, the ones I've heard speaking, cannot understand why we make it so difficult to interact with us, why we make it so difficult for consumers to interact with us. Um, why is it so hard to buy something from a publisher's website? For Amazon, it's easy. One click, boom, mm. off you go. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's you know a big focus of their thing. And they're right about that. And that's the... That's the, the push that we should all be taking from them, is striving to live up to the standards of customer service mm. and ease of use and experience that those companies have got um, across, their entire, uh, across their entire business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking then of platforms misbehaving, I think the last thing is probably the rise of fake news, because again, yeah. again, it wasn't anything, wasn't something that anyone saw coming back in 2010. Yeah. And so I guess what I'm most interested in is, is not so much that it happened, but what, um, what impact do you think it's had on the kind of trust relationship between the reader and the publisher? I, I think it's, in aggregate, a bad thing for all of us because, you know, um, the misbehaviour of bad actors, many bad actors in this space, is definitely having a negative effect on the way that the media industry as a whole is perceived because what you know fake news is in to one extent a matter of a person's opinion um, we know that it's not because we have high standards in journalism around objectivity and fact 
research and check your fact checking and all that kind of stuff. But to the average punter in the street, when they see something on Facebook, yeah. it's just from a media company. They don't know that that media company is not a real one or is being paid by the Russian government or whatever else it might be. Do you think that's the case then? Are people not getting more discerning People now? are getting more discerning. I think they are getting smarter or more savvy, I should say. But I don't think that's happening quickly enough. And I particularly don't think it's happening with older demographics. I think older demographics who are anyway a little bit less comfortable with some of these platforms... For them, they would view that through the same way, the same lens that they viewed linear television. The idea that you could put something that was fake news on linear TV, they wouldn't get how that would be possible. So mm-hmm. when they're looking at Facebook, they wouldn't get how that would be possible either. Um, there's a disconnect between their experience of interaction with media over the course of their life and what they're seeing on, on, on these platforms. But I think it's more, I, I, I don't want to approach it from that angle. For me, the, 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 the moral imperative here is the important one. And this is, this is the biggest failing of these, of these platforms of the people who run them and the biggest area of condemnation that we should have as, a, as, a, as an industry. These, these companies, particularly Facebook and Google, have unprecedented power in the world. And there has never been an organisation like Facebook that has the power to reach that many consumers yeah. simultaneously. You would hope that were such a platform to originate that it would have some sense of obligation to humanity and the big problem here is that the guys running these platforms have absolutely no sense of moral imperative in what they're doing as far as they're concerned this is just a business Mm. now it's not a business when it gets to that scale it is part of society Mm. and you Mm. have an obligation as a human being to make sure that that is not damaging to society if all you're trying to do is make money then good luck go and make money but you're not going to be able to spend it when the world is a smoking ruin because we don't believe in climate change or when <laughs> yeah. there's wars everywhere because we've elected loads of dictators because of your platform. Mm. And, that's, and that's the bit that I'm struggling with is that Mark Zuckerberg must wake up and look in the mirror in the morning and go, am I doing something that's dreadful for humanity? He must have that thought occasionally. If he doesn't, then he's so dangerous he shouldn't be in charge of the company in the first Psychopath place. Possibly. Yeah. Um, yes. But yeah, you know, at the same time, you know, there's the niche of talent, you know, there are a lot of the best talent that maybe 10 years ago would have wanted to work in the media. Now there's a battle on it because, yeah, you, know, well, they, you know, people want to work for the, the big, big tech companies. So that's, that's a really interesting one. And that's one that seems to be changing now. And this might be one of the things that puts the, puts the difficulties into the, into, puts the ball back into their court in terms of doing something about the difficulties they're having. I'm starting to hear people say that they don't want to work at Facebook and Google and Apple and Amazon because they're because of all the things that we've spoke, mm. spoken about, because of Cambridge Analytica, because of fake news, because of all the stuff that Google does around privacy. Uh, and it's kind of, you know, when faced with regulation, the threat to withdraw from the market, as it's done in many European countries. Um, I think that's, a, that's, that's having a negative effect, or negative, negative impact on the way those companies are viewed. And what about... Okay, that was seen, well, seen definitely as a very sort of a sexy career, wasn't it? I think, mm. you know, a very, um, you know, um, sort of Silicon Valley and it's been TV shows about it and making it really exciting and dynamic and now it's like, okay, maybe not. What about publishing? I think that's always been seen as a really, definitely for me as a journalist, I felt like if I'm at, you know, at a dinner party and people say, what do you do? If you say you're a journalist, people are instantly, that sounds quite interesting. Yeah, but we have a different problem. So we have a different problem. Fake news is that now? Fake news is not so much the problem there. The problem I think with journalism is that the economics of journalism are changing to such an extent that we've spoken about here that we need to be very careful that we end. And this was something I I heard Carol Cadwallader speak 
uh, on stage recently, and she made this point. You, we need to be sure as a society that we can find a way to fund independent journalism that challenges those in power and organisations like Facebook and Google and others that, 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 that abuse that power. Because there's a danger at the moment with a lot of the stuff we're doing that we end up not being able to fund any of this stuff. Um, if you put everything behind a paywall, then it's not getting the, the attention that it should. If you put the Cambridge Analytica story behind a paywall and only the readers of um, the Observer, right? The only mm. readers of the Observer can read it, then that story would never have gained traction. And I think there's absolutely something in that. So there's got to be some balance there between how journalism is funded and how we view it as a benefit to society. But what does that mean? I, there are fewer journalism jobs than there were in the past, and that's absolutely true. It's still, it's still an attractive career. Journalism, I always think, is a calling. It's not a, it's not a it's career. A, I mean, if I'm sure actually backing up on this, it's a tough industry to be in. Yeah, absolutely. It's really tough. Because, it's very tough. Because, it, you know, because of online content, yeah. um, often what we do is dying out. Yeah, and, so and the, the push idea that towards... Anyone can do it. And the push towards the gig economy, which is affecting mm. journalists just as it's affected yeah. cab drivers and you name yeah. it, delivery people and all the rest of it. Yeah. Bracketing journalists with We're going to have to do with artificial intelligence somewhere along the line as well. Yeah, I, it, it's a very, it's very tough that, that the, the, the world is moving towards a freelance-based economy. Um, again, driven by Silicon Valley values, which are the ones that we should be challenging. This is, again, not, from my opinion, not the right direction for society but nevertheless what does it mean for journalism it's harder to get a paid gig a full-time paid job in journalism which means that it's a calling so you end up doing it anyway but you end up gigging and then it's harder to it's harder to to make a living so tell me about it yeah yeah i mean you know you guys i'm sure you guys have been through that uh, many times in your lives so the immediate we should always be very very aware and i do always tell people having worked in a bank for four years never forget how lucky you are to work in media because it is a fantastically interesting and sexy and wonderful profession. I, yeah, and I things. love that. I wouldn't do anything else. No, I, neither I, would I. I'm passionate uh, about it. I love it. But um, you're never going to make as much money working in media as you would working for Apple. So as long as you're fine with that, then you, know, you yeah. can live with it. Also, there is a question here, a very important question around diversity, that people coming into the workplace, uh, and there's two aspects to this. The first is people coming into the workplace expect those workplaces to be diverse now. Diversity is no longer an option. It's no longer something that sits in some CSR you know, uh, plan somewhere. It has to be embedded into every aspect of the company because that's what workers expect. But also, because of, from an economic point of view, with all the change that's happening in the industry, all the change that's happening in the world, if you're not a diverse workplace, you're not in a position to take advantage of new networks and new opportunities and new ways of working that might make the difference to your business, mm. uh, that might make you develop and uncover a new revenue stream that you hadn't thought of. And on that point, thank you very much, James. Lots to think about, yeah. Yeah. to reflect on and to look forward to. Yes, Or to definitely. dread, either way. It depends where you're looking at it. Yeah. Fantastic, thank you very much. Thank you very much, James. So that was a really great interview with James. And the one thing that really leapt out for me was that he inadvertently gave his very own prediction. He did, for the next didn't 10 he? years, he did. We're going to hold him to this. He said that in the next 10 years, we're going to see Facebook break up. Well, you can see it happening, can't you? Because, you know, it could be regulators mm-hmm. in the US or the EU or maybe even the UK. Well, um, well, there is talk the Competition and Markets Authority have said that there is a strong argument for developing new regulations in the UK because they want to govern the behaviour of online platforms and to give people greater control over their data. Well, it's the data fear again. You yeah. Know, which, yeah. So, I mean, that might, but I mean, just simply from a um, kind of pure business perspective, uh, you know, as he alluded to, just the, the various elements maybe just get too big. So 
it makes sense to put Instagram over here and WhatsApp over here and Facebook in the middle. So I think, you know, it's interesting. I think for me, for me, I think looking beyond that, you know, I think it underlines again. And the other thing he said was just this whole idea that publishers need to be looking beyond social media yes. now. I think multiple that, platforms. that particular horse has bolted. And I think, you know, it's interesting that so many people now are talking about multi-platform publishing so you have a podcast you have video yeah, yeah. you have blogs you have words you have so many different elements and also multiple revenue sources moving yes. away from just this reliance on digital advertising um and i think this is something we're going to be talking about it in the is. next episode oh yeah, of, oh, yeah. The because the next episode we've, we've done the looking back and now we're going to be looking forward so the next episode is looking at the next 10 years in publishing and we were talking exactly about this about about the multi-platforms, about AI, about the future of venture capitalist-funded media, um, and about many more. I think, you know, so I think the technology element, again, we haven't really alluded to that, but I mean, AI, is it going to replace all journalists? Who knows? Um, I you know, hope not. Actually, what about blockchain, not. 5G? You know, what impact are these things going yeah. to have? There's some really interesting stories there, and uh, we've got some some really interesting people we're talking to. We have indeed, Ashley. Joining us in episode two are Mark Maddox, founder of Beta Media, which is a specialist startup studio that focuses on next generation media brands. There's Lucy Kang, academic strategic advisor and author of Innovators in Digital News. We've also got Rachel Arthur, who was actually one of the winners of the FIP Rising Star Awards last year. She's the founder and editor of Boom Saloon. And finally, we've got Soren Carlson, CEO and founder of United Robots, which use bots to automatically produce around 2,000 news stories a day. So you really don't want to miss episode two of Flip Insider. You also don't want to miss World Media Congress, which takes place in Portugal on the 15th to 16th September. You can register now at fipcongress.com. We hope to see you all there. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening and we will see you next time.